0: 7:02. The Naked Scientist. It's twenty minutes to three o'clock. I just love his tweet from a few moments ago. In fact, and he says, "Here we go tackling your science questions. What's on your mind? Ask away, and we'll come up with the answers." And that's literally what he does. He says, "Scratch that science itch." Chris, good afternoon. Oh, hi, Azza. I just love this tweet. Uh, But I was thinking about you because I was looking at just the latest figures around the coronavirus.
1: Yeah, we're up to nearly a thousand people have lost their lives to this. And SARS, we think, accounted for about 800 deaths. And currently Mm -hmm. the numbers are close to 40,000 people that China know about. And they're keeping tabs on about 450,000 people who are contacts of cases they've diagnosed, because obviously one has to try to rein in a virus by by getting one step ahead. And you do that by stopping the people who have caught it from giving it to anybody else. And you do that by mm. following up the contacts. So they're doing that. The really the the big thing i think that's going to come this week is we're beginning to see now trickle down into other countries because china had quite a long lag and you alluded to this when you said well we right at the beginning of january began talking about this and everyone was largely ignoring this as odds you know some cough and cold from china we've had flus and things before but but um i spotted this and i thought i think there's all the ingredients of something that could become quite big in this which is why we at the naked scientists began talking about this and taking it more seriously so given that it does have this this fairly long lag, as uh, the virus smolders in the population, and then slowly begins to increase its penetration. I suspect we're mm. going to see in the next couple of weeks more countries declaring more cases, especially as they go looking with testing now. I mean, here in Britain, we've gone from nothing to uh, nearly 10 people who've been diagnosed. Now, that's not very many. But the interesting thing for me was, in one case, a big cluster of those people went on holiday, stayed in a ski chalet, and there was one person who'd been to Singapore, not even been to China, but they'd been to Singapore and picked this virus up in Singapore, came back, went to the ski resort. They were in that ski resort and they caused this outbreak amongst these uh, UK holidaymakers. Which just goes to show yes. you know, quite, quite how quickly and how explosively a person can trigger outbreaks in various places. Now they knew about these cases because they traced the person from Singapore and that's kind of reassuring that the system yes. works, isn't it? But you have to ask, well, how many other people might have been infected in that resort who has been lost to follow up? We don't know yet. And I think probably Mm. as testing comes online in countries like the UK, France, and we start to test more people, we're going to get more clarity. And and that will really tell us what direction this thing's going to take. Is it going to fizzle out or is it going to start growing? And uh, we won't know until we get some idea as to how much activity there is lost in the background, Amelia, of seasonal colds and flus at the moment.
0: And now there are reports that it could have come from the pangolin. And I remember distinctly a question that you answered to one of our listeners about, what is it, zoonomics?
1: Zoonoses, yeah. Uh, Diseases that come from animals, yeah. Mm,
0: So that's the thinking at the moment around the pangolin. It's like revenge of the pangolin.
1: (laughs) Well, China's murdering, murdering them by the thousand every year because they use their scales in various herbal remedies and other things. And so they are exploited in these markets and it does look like at the moment based on the genetic analysis because scientists have now found a coronavirus which is very similar to I think more than 99% similar to this one that's now circulating in people in pangolins. And the and originally they had pointed the finger at bats because bats were the source of mm. SARS. This present virus is eighty ninety percent similar to bat coronaviruses, about ninety percent similar to bat coronaviruses, eighty percent similar to SARS. So it seemed like a good prospect that it was a bat. But the pangolin does appear to have the edge, so it may be a pangolin coronavirus, which could well have originally come from a bat hence the close resemblance to bat coronaviruses and it's and it's very very likely that these animals being brought to market are leading to them having close contacts with humans or perhaps some other intermediate species that then amplifies the virus up makes makes the infectious dose really high because that other animal gets really ill people then catch it and then it goes into what we call market cycle, people and urban cycle, people begin to pass it around in clusters.
0: Right. Well, that's my scientific itch scratched. Marjorie and Brakpan, uh Chris is listening. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, I just want to ask, I've got a crystal cut glass vase and when I wash it, it sparkles and there's all different colours and it's beautiful, but within half an hour... It's dull, it looks all milky
1: and doesn't look like crystal at all. It's the same reason why if you make anything wet, it appears to be more shiny. What's happened with your nice vase is that as glass ages, and sometimes with cleaning and other forms of abuse, not that you'd abuse your glass, but you can end up with micro-fracturing on the surface of the glass, where if you were to look with a very fine microscope, you'd see that there are little fissures or pits in the glass surface. What that has the effect of doing is that when light comes in, It, Instead of passing straight through the glass, which it would do if the surface was unblemished, the light sometimes interacts with one of these little cracks or pits and it bounces off. And when you scatter light back, you create a bloom effect. It's a bit like the reason snow looks brilliant white, but water that snow is made from is transparent. It's because ice is lots of little crystals, and when the same light shines on the crystals, some of it is scattered back at you. And because it scatters back all the different colours of the rainbow, it looks white. Your vase is scattering back refracting some of the light that's hitting it from these cracks and blemishes on the glass surface and that's having the effect of making the surface look white and crazed so why does that disappear when you make it wet the reason is that when you make the glass wet water fills all the little cracks and blemishes and then you've got no edge or obvious surface from which the light can scatter because it goes into the water and is then deflected down through the water it's called refraction into the glass surface and straight through and so much less of the light is scattered back at you and as a result it looks like a nice pristine smooth shiny surface but once the water's gone you're back to that bloom again because the light gets scattered it's the same reason actually that when paint is first put on the wall it looks a darker color and as the paint dries the wall looks lighter or your hair looks darker when it's wet it's the same science
0: ah wow next let's go to sean in greenstone hello sean hi afternoon uh yeah i'd just like to ask chris if possible and um, I don't do school, so I'm sorry if this is a silly question, but when you get a viral infection, is it literally one virus that enters your body and, and plays havoc on it, or is it multiple viruses of the same strain that are hitting your body? Because I'm just thinking in my simple mind that if it's just one, would it be possible to locate it and remove the
1: virus? <laughs> is that something
0: that's even possible, or...? It's a good thought, Sean.
1: The answer here is that initially you're infected by a small number of virus particles, usually. If you take the norovirus that causes winter vomiting disease, diarrhoea, vomiting, very nasty, very common as well, the infectious dose of that is about 10 virus particles. And the reason it's 10 and not just one is because not all virus particles are equally infectious. Some are defective, they don't infect properly, some of them don't work properly. So about 10 virus particles or more come into your body. They infect a cell, but each cell that gets hit then turns into a virus factory because the virus is nothing more than an infectious bag of genes. So it hijacks a cell, turns the cell into a virus factory, which then in turn churns out anything, depending on the virus type, between hundreds to thousands and possibly in some cases even millions of new virus particles come out of each infected cell and they do two things one is that they then pounce on all the other cells nearby and infect those so that you then have more rounds of viral growth and that's why when you first get infected you don't know you're infected because the odd cell being infected and making a few thousand viruses that's not going to make any difference but once you start to get large numbers of cells infected producing large amounts of virus you then produce a very large stimulus for your immune system which comes racing in and starts attacking the virally infected cells and killing them and producing more inflammation and that's what produces all the symptoms of feeling shivery feeling like you've got a sore throat runny nose aching muscles feeling very tired the other thing that happens is that some of these viruses don't infect cells in uh, in their whereabouts they leave the body in coughs and sneezes or via the roots such as if you're having norovirus, and they go into the environment. And once they're in the environment, they can be breathed in, picked up, and therefore infect other individuals, and that's how the infection spreads. But no, it's an amplification process. A very small number of viruses goes in, very large numbers of viruses come out. And to to give you a norovirus example... Every milliliter of what leaves your body when you're being symptomatic, either upwards or downwards with norovirus, contains enough virus to infect the entire world population multiple times.
0: Several rounds. Wow, that's just incredible. Sean, as you can hear, this wasn't a silly question at all. No, yeah. Wow. I don't know if I feel better or worse (laughs) off. I know. Especially with the Singapore example that Chris gave earlier. So you're thinking, oh, they've been incubating or they've been built. Their strategy is to get in there and multiply themselves. And by the time you realize you're sick, it's like thousands of them, if not millions, and it's late. Wow. So that, that is, really, and as far as I understand, the virus is nothing the body can actually do once those viruses have actually been produced in the body.
1: Once it's in there, Sean, the way that you tackle it is that you rely on a part of your immune system which are called CD8 T cells. These cells have receptors on their surface that inspect the surfaces of our cells. And cells continuously show them what's going on inside the cell. You can think of them as a bit like shop windows. And you're, the, the, you're browsing along through the shopping mall and you're looking in the windows at the display. Cells are using these windows to show these CD8 T-cells what's inside. The CD8 T-cells are programmed to recognise things that shouldn't be in the window. And when they see something that shouldn't be in the window, they basically snuggle up next to the cell that they're not happy with and they kill it and they kill it by punching a big hole in the membrane. It's basically like you driving a bulldozer through a shop you don't like. And so the cells wipe out the unwanted cells that are incubating viruses, hopefully before they've had a chance to make too many more viruses. At the same time another branch of your immune system makes antibodies and these are little pieces of protein shaped like a letter Y that drift around in your bloodstream and the arms, the upward pointing arms of the letter Y they're sticky and they're specifically sticky for only certain chemicals and you make antibodies which are specifically sticky for that virus that you want to neutralise and so as the immune response matures and learns to deal with the virus you're making more of these antibodies which the minute a virus pops out of a cell These antibodies glue themselves all over it. And it's a bit like tarring and feathering criminals in the Middle Ages where people used to dunk them in tar and chuck them in feathers. It's exactly the same thing. It covers the virus in antibody it can't do anything anymore because it's so weighed down by all these stodgy antibodies and it can't get into any more cells that the virus is then destroyed. So there's two ways of doing it. One is destroying the cells, that's the bulldozer going through the shop. And two is you then make antibodies, which are the tarring and feathering, which stop the thing in its tracks and also protect you from getting it again.
0: Amazing. Uh, let's go to Homoto in Soweto. Hi, Homozo, You've got a question about freezing breast milk. Yes. Um, we know that breast milk is 99% of water. So when I freeze my baby's breast milk and then I put it in a bottle, say, for instance, on 120 mils, yeah. I take it out, I defrost it, it go, it stays constant. So it will be exactly where it was before freezing it. But with water, it's different. So I just wanted to ask the naked eye uh, uh, scientists how come, because it's still... It's still
1: water. Yeah, there's quite a lot of fat in milk, and there are other proteins in there, which is what the baby's relying on—the fat and the proteins, some sugar, some lactose sugars, a lot of phosphate and calcium as well, which is what helps the baby grow grow bones and and become big and strong. And the, I think the re- the reason that you when you freeze water, you get ice on the top, and then the water underneath—you can't see that happening with the milk so much because it. It's milky so you can't see the white ice crystals inside but actually what you will find is you'll make a layer of ice which will slowly form on the milk surface and then work its way down through and then the whole thing will freeze solid. As it thaws out it it will it, it will go from a block of ice down to liquid and if you were to pour off that liquid you'd see that, that there was ice left behind inside the bottle of milk that you've frozen and that will be water and the other stuff which is in the milk the proteins, the fats, the sugars and so on that will be more concentrated in the liquid that melts out first but because you thaw the milk completely before then warming it up and giving it to the baby you don't notice that, that that's happened and then you give it a good shake and it, and it resuspends everything
0: you and it's quite sweet sweet.
1: very sweet lots of lactose in there lots of lactose in there and um, babies get an enormous number of calories from that and they also get a lot of calories from the fat that's in breast milk it's very very fat rich and that means because fat packs such a high energy punch it's a really good thing to feed a baby because the baby then can can absorb all those fats and immediately use them
0: oh what a great question thank you so much thank you Azan. All right. Chris, let's leave it there. We'll be together again next week, Monday.
1: Looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Azania. See you soon.
0: That is The Naked Scientist.